Thanks. Well, guys, thank you all so much. It's a, it's a great honor to be here, not just because Emma's here, which is great. It's neat to be in, in her college. Uh, but also because, you know, you guys taking a Monday morning to come out and, and hear a little bit about our story. And as, as Christian said, the goal today is to tell you a little bit about how work has impacted our family life. Um, and, and as Christian and I were talking about this week and said, you know, we want to talk about work and worship and family. And, and we started to try to pull those things together in my life. They're really hard to pull together because they're all so interwoven. So I want to tell you a little bit about our family and not just our amazing daughter, Emma, but we actually have, uh, six kids. I mean, Sneak back there and make sure the right photo's coming up. So here's here's our family. And you probably get a sense, if you look at this family, to figure, you know, we might have been built a little bit differently than some other families. And so I want to spend some time today and tell you how work was actually kind of the impetus, actually moved our family to be constructed in, in the way it is. So early in my career, I, I worked for Focus on the Family. I don't, does anybody know Focus on the Family aware of Focus? So Focus really exists to provide parenting advice to help us be better parents and also um, to have strong marriages. And so it's a marriage and parenting organization. And we had, um, had been at Focus for a number of years when we asked kind of a very important question. And for Focus, it was, what should we do about orphans? You see, Focus was doing a lot of work with families, was doing a lot of work with parents, but we really weren't doing anything specifically for orphans. And it was a huge hole in our ministry, and and so they pulled a group of people together to ask this question. If Focus got involved in orphan care, what would that look like? Now, they pulled a group of about 10 employees, and, and we were an organization at the time of about 700, so I felt really honored to be on this group, and I thought, you know, they probably invited me Honestly, because I'm so brilliant, because I've got great ideas, and because, man, they, they knew that I could solve this problem. But I think the real reason they invited me was because I was already an adoptive parent. We had adopted our son, Damon, when we lived out in Los Angeles. So Damon has been uh, with us for about 16 years. He's 18 years old now. And I think that was really the reason why they pulled me onto this task force. They wanted a voice of somebody who was an adoptive parent could kind of talk through what that experience was like. And I gotta tell you, going all the way back to Damon, I think sometimes talking about adoption with, with college age kids, you might be thinking, man, that, that maybe is somewhere in my future, but not really considering it, not really thinking about it now, right? But for my wife and I, we met in college, and it was really those years as we started to get more serious and we thought we would get married after college, we started talking about adopting even way back then. And it was, uh, several years later when we were in, Los Angeles, and we had two kids. We had Christian and then Emma, and we decided, you know, if we're serious about this adoption thing, maybe we ought to start the paperwork. So we started the paperwork. We started going to classes, and before you know it, you actually end up with a kid at the end of that process. I don't know if you guys knew that, but that's kind of what we discovered. And so Damon came into our our family, and and we were then kind of this mixed-race family of of five. But I want to tell you more about this this kind of task force or these series of meetings that we had at Focus, because I went into those thinking, again, I could provide some value and I could help guide the organization, and it came out having a much more personal impact on my life than I thought. So we had these these meetings, and it was really five days, five whole days of nothing but meetings and all about orphans and the plight of the orphan. Now, we started with asking the question, does God care about the orphan? And we didn't spend a whole lot of time on that, right? There's some 300 verses in Scripture that talks about caring for the poor or the vulnerable. And this verse in James I love, James 1.27, right, says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think about all the different websites and, and books and Bible studies about how do we live out our faith, right? And what's, what's the right way to do that? What's our calling? And yet James 1.27 makes it pretty clear. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is to care for the poor and the vulnerable in our midst. That's a call that we all have, right? So none of us can say that I'm not called to that because Scripture makes it pretty clear we're all called. The question is, how are we going to respond? So we took a look at Scripture and we felt like, yeah, God does care about the orphans. And so then we started to have speakers come in and we had about 20 speakers from around the world and they all had different perspectives on the global orphan issue. And they came and they would, would kind of share with us a lot of tidbits and, and statistics. And here's one of the statistics that we heard. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 153 million orphans in the world today. This is a UNICEF statistic. Now, one of the things I learned early on, you guys may or may not know, an orphan is defined as somebody who's lost one or both parents. So if there's any good news in this statistic, it's, well, maybe they at least have one parent. And then we got our next statistic, and that one says that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 17.8 million double orphans on the planet today. Interesting, there's a reason why there's an asterisk on this statistic, because the truth is we have no idea how many double orphans there are in the world. This number only accounts for those orphans that are, are currently placed inside of a home, right? This doesn't count the probably 100 or 150 million kids who are just living on the streets that nobody knows. They may live in an institution or they're homeless. These are the kids that can be victims of trafficking, uh, hard labor. So we don't know exactly what this number is, but we think the number of double orphans in the world is somewhere north of 100 to 150 million kids. Now, if you're like me and we heard these stats in these, these meetings, it really, after a while, it doesn't mean much, right? That, that's a big number, but I don't know how to equate that. I don't know quite how to wrap my head around it. And I certainly don't know how to address it, right? How do I, how do I address the need of 150 million orphans? So then we started telling stories, and I want to tell you guys a couple of stories about orphans that I've met. So the first one is this little guy. His name is Thibisu. I met Thibisu when I had a chance to go to Swaziland. Anybody heard of Swaziland? It sounds like one of those made-up African countries, but it's a really small country just kind of north of South Africa in the southern part of the African continent. Let me tell you a little bit about the state of Swaziland when I was there. According to the World Health Organization, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the adult population was HIV positive. There, the, um, the number of people living in Swaziland was about 800,000. Five years before, it had been 1.2 million AIDS was absolutely destroying this nation. In fact, when you go, you see children like Thibisi, you sm- see small kids, and there's, there's, they're numerous, they're all over. And you'll see a grandmother or a grandfather, but there are no adult parents or 20, 30, 40-year-olds in the country. Average life expectancy in Swaziland is 32 years old. The unemployment rate in Swaziland rates between 80 and 95%. So somewhere between 5 and 20% of that adult population has regular employment. We're exactly the opposite of that here in the United States, right? Our unemployment rate is somewhere between 5 and 6% unemployed. That's their employed rate. This was a tough place to survive. It's a tough place to be a kid. And so I was in Swaziland, and we were running camps, and we were trying to figure out how we could partner with this community and, and hopefully stabilize the community and serve all of the needs there. And so we just had a big day where we kind of invited the community in. We played soccer, and, and we're just trying to get to know them and meet with some of the elders and, and talk about how we might, as a church, get involved with this area in Swaziland. And I kept looking over and catching the eye of little Thibisu. 
And it's hard not to, right? Crazy cute kid. He's got a, a pair of adult dress shoes on. His pants are too big. His shirt's not quite buttoned right. But man, he was cute as a button and he was always smiling. And he always had this little red bucket. We were clearing a big rock field to try to make a soccer field and he would load that thing up with rocks and he'd take it off and dump it. And he always had a smile on his face. So I finally asked, I said, tell me about Thibisu. What's his story? Not surprisingly, both of Thibisu's parents had passed away. They were both HIV positive and Thibisu was on his own. He had a small hut, which was nice. He still had the family hut. The roof wasn't secure, so it would let the rain in, and there was no way to lock a front door, so he was completely on his own in this town in Mahalabanani, Swaziland. And they would tell me that, you know, Thibisu, every night, he hated to stay by himself in his, in his hut. He didn't feel safe and secure. So every night as the sun started to go down, he would go throughout the community and try to find another home, another family that would maybe take him in for the night, maybe provide a little bit of food, but more than that, just comfort and security to know that he was with others. But as you can imagine, in a place where there's been so much loss of life and so much devastation, so much poverty, there weren't any homes that could take him in. Everyone was stretched to the limit. The thing that was just crushing to me was the next thing that my friend told me about Thibisu. They said he's actually the head of his household. He's got a little sister that he has to care for as well. That's quite a burden for a young boy of about seven years old. Life and death struggle every single day. And so when you hear stories about this, hopefully it helps to put some flesh on these statistics, right? That when we talk about 150 million orphans, it's 150 stories like the Bisous. We also started to talk about uh, Rwanda, the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Now, that was probably just a couple of years before most of you were born. But for me, that's something that happened in my lifetime. And I think back to when we heard about World War II and we, we heard about the atrocities that was happening during World War II, and you just think, man, never in my lifetime, we can't allow that to happen again. And yet in 1994, over the course of 100 days, an estimated 800 to a million Tutsis were slaughtered in Rwanda. They were slaughtered by axe, machete, spears. They were trapped inside of buildings and churches and burned alive. Now, the initial statistics put that number at about a million people, but we know now as we look back and, and we kind of trace and take more census, Most people now assume that it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million people were killed over that 100-day period. As you can imagine, genocide creates orphans. And the orphans from the genocide and war and AIDS and everything else that was going on in Rwanda that time were somewhere around the neighborhood of 900,000 kids. One in three kids in Rwanda had no parents. Had a chance to meet one of those. His name was Victor. This is a photo of Victor when he was 10 years old. Oh, am I going way too far ahead? Sorry, there he is. So Victor's story is is very interesting. So Victor um, lived with his mother. His father had several wives, so he had several different families in Rwanda, and Victor was one of those. And he was in his home when the Hutus were coming to slaughter all the Tutsis. And he described that they had his arms pulled apart, his mom cowering in the corner. They had his arms pulled apart. The men were holding machetes, and they were ready to start hacking him to death in front of his mom. They were debating about who his father was to make sure that they had the right bloodline, and they couldn't quite get that straight. So they kept debating the whole time. Victor's just ready for his short little life to be over. 
All of a sudden, somebody outside of the hut blows a whistle. This whistle was notifying the men that we found a whole other group of people. And so the men left Victor, and they ran out, and they went after another family to chop down among the brush in Rwanda. Victor took that moment, and he sprinted. And he described to me how he spent the next several months of his life hiding night after night in the bush, never knowing if he would be discovered or not. And he would every now and then connect with another group of kids, and they would spread out in the brush at night. They didn't want to be together, so they would all be caught. And and he was always surprised that not everybody came back the next day. He described how one time he was being chased, and he got to a river, and he didn't know how to swim, but he knew that was his only way of survival. So he jumped in the river, and he started fighting the water. And he says, you know, I was in the middle of that river and I actually prayed that God would just take me there and I would drown because I didn't want to get to the other side and start this life all over again. Victor survived the genocide. Things in Rwanda started to calm down and and people were now rebuilding in Rwanda. And Victor was a 10-year-old boy completely on his own. As you can imagine, with so much loss of life, it was pretty easy for him to find a place to live. He found a, a home that had been abandoned. And by home, I'm just talking about probably a 10 by 10 square that offered a little bit of uh, relief from the weather. And Victor lived there. But Victor had a great passion in life. He wanted to go to school. He wanted to become educated. So at 10 years old, Victor was living on his own, and he would fetch water in the morning, and he would take the long hike into school. He would do school. He would look around and see if there were any jobs, any way that he could make money or, or do some kind of small little manual labor to be able to get a little bit of food. He would go back to the well, get more water for the evening, and he would come home and he would make himself a meal. Most of those meals were just boiled water that he would pretend was soup, boiled water that he would put some grass in and pretend it was tea. He would then do his homework and he would get up the next morning and he would start all over again. Now the amazing thing about Victor, I actually met him because he would end up getting sponsored by Compassion, which is where I work now, and And the beautiful thing about Victor is not only did he finish school, he actually became a doctor. And not only is he a medical doctor, but he's also working to reconcile those two groups in Rwanda and brings groups together. He's bringing families who had people slaughtered with the people that killed them, and he's bringing them together to rebuild his country. Victor is one of these faces. He's one of these stories when we look at these millions of orphans. And then we looked not only at the global orphan, but we, we started to look at the orphan care situation in the United States. One of the wealthiest countries in the world, right? And we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 408,000 children in foster care at any given time. Heard one story about a, a gal who was... Uh, was 17 and a half years old in the foster care system. She had been in the foster care system her entire life. And they were doing a new kind of program to help promote these kids to hopefully find a forever home for them. And they would take pictures of these foster care kids and write a little bio, and they'd circle them around malls and airports to try to bring awareness to the kids that are waiting in the foster care system to hopefully get them a forever home. And this one particular gal was 17 and a half years old, and they were, they were telling all of the kids about this new program. And she said, I really want to be in it. And a social worker described to us that she had to go up to that young lady and say, look, you're 17 and a half. In a couple of months, you're going to age out of the system. You're going to be an adult. You're on your own. I'm sorry, but nobody's going to adopt you. And this girl looked down, and she knew it. And the social worker, obviously, knowing that she'd kind of broken her heart, said, tell me why this is so important to you now when you're 17 and a half to try to get this forever home. 
And she said, you know, I'm starting to think about life on my own, and I hope there's some day that I get married. And she said, when I get married, I hope that there's somebody that can sit on my half of the church. And she said, I don't want to have to walk down the aisle alone. I hope there would be a man in my life, a dad in my life, who could walk me down that aisle and give me to my future husband. And you hear these kinds of stories, and it starts to put faces on these huge numbers, these 408,000 kids that are waiting for a foster home. And so we're in these meetings, and you can imagine having speaker after speaker for two days, 16 to 20 hours of hearing these kinds of stories. And we were, we were all so uh, driven that we've got to figure out a way to solve this problem, right? We, we go immediately to, well, the only way to solve a problem of this magnitude is we need to kind of start a new ministry, a new outreach. And to do that, we need money. We need to find donors who will support this kind of work. And that was kind of our immediate mindset, right? We need to get rich people involved in this, in this cause. So then we asked another good question. We said, well, who are the rich? So I'm going to do a little uh, quiz here. You guys don't have to raise your hands, but just kind of think. Do you have $2,200 worth of assets? Do you own material possessions that are worth about $2,200? Could be a car, a laptop, gaming system, clothes, phone. If you add all those things up, if it comes up to somewhere around the neighborhood of $2,200, then you're at the midline of the world's wealth. Now, I know my daughter Emma worked all summer to kind of provide, you know, take a little bit of the, a bite out of tuition and, and to have some spending money for this semester. How many of you in the last 12 months, even though we're kind of poor college students, how many of you made around $1,500 through odd jobs over the last year? If you made $1,500, that puts you in the 80th percentile of the world's wealth. Now, if we go a little bit further, and if you have sufficient food and decent clothes, if you live in a house or an apartment, if you have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, right, even a bike, then you're in the top 15% of the world's wealth. We went even further, and we, we found out that if you have money saved, if you have a hobby that requires equipment or supplies, think about golfing or hunting or scrapbooking, if you have a variety of clothes in your closet, if you have two cars in any condition, if you live in your own home, then you're in the world's top 5% of the world's wealth. If you earn more than $50,000 annually, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth. And I tell you, we were in these meetings for a week, and we, it was clear that God cared about the orphan, and the plight of the orphan was huge and compelling. And then we kind of came to this realization that when we look at, boy, we've got to get the wealthy people involved after hearing all of that stuff, I asked myself, if not me, then who? All of a sudden, this stopped to be kind of this academic thing about how do we solve a global orphan problem, and it became very personal. What am I going to do about it? If I'm among the world's wealthiest and I know about the problem and I, I claim to follow Christ, then, then I've got to get active in this space. And so I came home, and I told my wife, I said, I think we need to adopt again. And I, I realized, looking back, there's several times in my life where I've just kind of dropped these bombshells. Like, I've been thinking about them for a long time, and then I just drop them on my wife. And I said, I think we need to adopt again. And praise God, 
she was open to the idea, and that started us on a journey to adopt for a second time. And this time we decided that we wanted to go international. We weren't going to go through the foster care system. We wanted to adopt, and we wanted to adopt from Africa. And so we, we identified Ethiopia as the place that we were going to go. In Ethiopia, like a lot of places in the developing world, there's some sad statistics about Ethiopia. Somewhere in the neighborhood of a million HIV orphans in that country. Literacy rate is about a third of the population. The annual income in Ethiopia is about $300. The average person in Ethiopia is $300. That's below the extreme poverty line. That means the average person in Ethiopia is not making enough to be able to meet basic human needs like water, security, and food. This is a tough place. So my wife and I went back again through this process, and we're, we're doing all the paperwork to start an adoption in Ethiopia. And, and I'll never forget when we finally got that email that said, we've matched you with two boys, two brothers, and their pictures are in the email attached. And I can tell you, man, that is a surreal moment to know that you're going to click on a photo and all of a sudden see your children for the very first time. And I'll share with you the photos that we got. This is Carter Haptamu and Cooper Fakadu. They were four and not quite one. And you know, the interesting thing about adopting these two is, is for me, I did have, to be honest, kind of this self-righteous, I'm going to come in and save and, and we're going to do this good deed. But when my wife and I landed in Ethiopia, all of that changed. And it stopped to be kind of this good deed or this cause. And, and these were real kids from a real family who had a real story that we were so honored to be able to be knit together with them. And in fact, we met their father. His name is Alamayu. And their story is that their mother died from malaria, which is, is one of those things that is just so frustrating because malaria is completely preventable. In fact, if any of you have been on a mission trip, travel overseas, it's, it's really easy to get malaria medicine, and you probably get it before you even go, and yet it's the number one preventable killer on the planet today. And malaria took her life, and when she died, Alamayu had no way to care for his youngest child, a baby. That's our son, Cooper. And he tried with other women in the village to say, is there any way that they could share breast milk? And, and nobody could. It was another one of those communities where everybody was struggling to survive, and there was nobody that could take on yet another child. And so Alamayu at the time was a father of six kids, and he thought there was no way that he could care for his youngest two. We got to spend an hour with Alamayu, and that was, it was one of those moments where I, I think I've never felt closer to God, right? We were hearing from Alamayu that when he decided to make this adoption plan, he was praying, he was praying that God would find the right family somewhere for these kids. He shared with us how he and his wife would stay up late at night and they would dream about what life might be like for their kids. Like, what if they could go to school? What a huge dream that would be if they could even just go to grade school. And maybe they dreamed a little bit more about middle school or even secondary school and high school. And I don't know if their dreams ever even got big enough that their kids could go to college. But he told us about how he and his wife would lay in bed at night and they would talk about their different dreams. And it just hit me, he's a, he's a dad just like I am. Those are the same things that I do, same things that we hope and pray for our own kids. And so while Alamayu is praying for a family for his two kids, we're on the other side of the world praying that God would give us the exact right children. The other thing that hit me when I talked to Alamayu was he was my age. 
We were the same age, and he had six children. He was giving up his two youngest for adoption because he didn't think they would survive if they stayed with him. He was giving those two up for adoption. We had four kids. We were going to welcome these two, and we would then be a family of six. And I started to think as he was talking to me, man, we've got so much in common. We're both dads. We've got the same dreams, desires, the same pains in our life. And I thought, man, this is really amazing that, that we're so similar. Except for one thing. Biggest mistake Alameyu made, he got himself born into rural Ethiopia. An area that's been devastated by drought and famine. An area where generation after generation has struggled just to survive, where malnutrition runs rampant, where malaria, HIV are just a part of everyday life. Alamayu made the mistake of being born there. And so when his wife passed away, he had no way to care for his kids. And so when he was born into that, I had the great privilege to be born in upper middle class United States. School was never a question. Right? College was a foregone conclusion for me. I could fall out of bed and do almost nothing and find myself in a pretty good career and have a pretty comfortable life. And here's this man who worked his hands to the bone every day just so his family could survive one more night. And so it led a new thought in me as I was thinking about adoption, and I am a huge proponent of adoption. Anybody who asks or says they're thinking about adoption, man, I am right there telling them, do it. It's, it's the best thing I've ever done in life, and that's true. It's the hardest thing, but it's the best thing. But, you know, my thinking started to change a little bit because here's this man who's a loving father who wants nothing more to care for his kids, very capable and able to do it, except he didn't have enough. And I thought, man, we ought not live in a world where a father who's loving and wants to be with his children just can't because he doesn't have the resource to make it so. And so I started doing my own little research, and and remember those 400,000 kids that are in foster care, about 50,000 of those get adopted into a permanent home every year. Of the somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 million orphans, the numbers vary year to year, but it's somewhere between 20 and 40,000 that get adopted every year. Adoption is great. Adoption is beautiful. Adoption cannot be the only solution. If it is, we're leaving 80 to 90% of our orphans without any home. And so it started to dawn on me that while adoption is a great plan and, and is a big plan, that there's something more. We've got to go all the way back to that initial call, right? That if we want to practice true religion, to practice true religion means that we all need to be involved in orphan care. You guys might be familiar with this verse from Matthew where he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You know, a lot of times people can ask, Hey, there's so many bad things happening in the world. Where's God? And we can get stumped by those questions, right? Those are deep, hard questions. Where's God when when bad things happen in the world? I think this is part of the answer, right? He's called us to be his hands and feet. He's called us into ministry. He's called us to take action on behalf of the poor and vulnerable. So rather than sit back and think we need to defend God and why he lets bad things happen, we probably need to look at other believers and say, why aren't we doing anything? So I think the question I want to leave you guys with is the same one that I had. If it wasn't me, then who? And if it's not you, then who? See, I think sometimes in college we think about, man, I'm in a proprietary or preparatory stage in life, right? I'm not actually doing life yet. I'm getting ready to. I'm I'm training up and I'm practicing. We can talk about your generation about being the church of the future. And I'd like to challenge you guys and say, you're not the church of the future. You're the church of now. 
And we can sit back and we can prepare for life and we can think one day, someday I'm going to get involved. I'm going to be active. I'm going to do these things. But there's nothing stopping us from doing it now. Now, it might not be financial. You know, legally, it probably can't be adoption at this age, but there are things that we can do. We've got Wichita and Hutchison not far from here. Are there foster care kids there that would love to come out and spend a week with the basketball team or the soccer team, the football team? Could we run a camp for them? Could we treat them special? How about in your own lives? Do you know people, maybe in your parents or other families or kids from your hometowns that, that are in this situation that need somebody to tell them that they're loved, that they're valuable? What about being advocates and being voices, right? Can we challenge others to prioritize orphans? So I want to challenge you today that if it's not you, then who? And if it's not now, then when? It can be so easy for life to start passing you by and you miss those God-given appointments where he's called you to interact with him, to be his hands and feet, to be to be active in the world today. And we can pass that by thinking, not yet. I got to get through school. Not now. I got to get my first job. I got to do good at my first job and work to my first promotion. And before you know it, so much time has gone by and we've missed God's calling. So again, you may not feel called to adopt, but we are all called to care for the poor and the vulnerable, the orphan in our midst. Let me pray for us. Father, it is a great challenge that you give us. And I don't understand the mystery of why you call us into ministry. Father, I don't always understand why you don't just make things perfect here. But Lord, you've called us to be your hands and feet. Those that claim to follow you, Lord, you've made it perfectly clear that we are to care for the widow and the orphan. We're to care for those in distress in our world. Father, I ask for forgiveness in my own life in those times when I've not done that when it's been too easy for me to say I'm too busy or I need to use my money for something else. And Father, for these students here that are so filled with passion and skills and desires, Lord, I I don't know what it is for each one of them, but I pray you would find an area in their lives where their personal skills and the things that you've bred into them can overlap, Lord, with your amazing call. Lord, help us to find ways to serve you and to care for these poor and vulnerable children around the world who so need touch of grace and love, somebody to speak truth and light into their lives. In Jesus' name we pray.